A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling choicey adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week we read up until chapter 47 free. So the first half of part four of Golden Sun by Pierce Brown. It was great. I'm going to continue with what I did a couple weeks ago and just dig right in without Crossland. Actually, no, he'd be mad at me. So uh, roll the intro music and I'll see you on the other side. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. Think of us as your drunken weekly book club. So, Crossland, I think I'd like to start discussion off today with the uh, convoluted, elaborate coup that everyone's been talking about for the last week or so. The plot to Golden Sun by Pierce Brown. (laughs) I'm... I'm not sure these are the droids you're looking for, PJ. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're definitely going to be talking about uh, coups, insurrections, and otherwise, but not related to the current state of the United States. We're going to be talking about Golden Sun. Specifically today, we're going to be breaking down chapters 40 through 46, the beginning of part four, Ruin, as PJ so eloquently put in the beginning here. <laughs> um, but before we do that, first, let's talk about what we're drinking. Yes, let's do. What are you having? So... Uh, it's kind of a mojito. I named it Garden Bullshit. Uh, <laughs> so it's, I started with some mint leaves and some basil leaves and uh, some homemade basil simple syrup that I muddled all together. Oh, and some lime, like some lime chunks. Muddle all that together and then added like ah, an ounce of ginger liqueur and two ounces of vodka and then topped it with club soda. And then uh, put a big chunk of lime on there for more greenness. And then I took a sip of it and I realized I forgot any any bit of ice. So I added, I, I had to pour it into a different glass that was bigger and add some ice ice cubes to it. So uh, <laughs> it's surprisingly delicious. Nice. It's light and refreshing, and I, I count it as a salad. So I guess um, it. I guess it's a drink salad. It's a drink salad. <laughs> Following that up, I've got a double IPA from Aslan Beer Company, which is out of Hemden, Virginia, I think. Hemden or Herndon? I can't tell. The font's too small and my eyes suck. Master of Karate, <laughs> which has an amazing label, can art. Yeah, I'm excited to give that a shot once we're done here. Once I'm done with my with my salad. <laughs> what have that you got? sounds pretty great. Yeah, so uh, right now, what I am drinking is a delicious, delicious Mezcal Paloma, um, which Mezcal is like the the whiskey of tequila for those who don't know. So, you know, it's very, it's got a little bit of smoke to it, but it's four ounces of grapefruit, two tablespoons of lime juice, topped with a little bit of club soda, or in my case, I've, I've actually got it with um, just some standard sparkling seltzer, and then Icy Boys, so... Yeah, yep. it's uh, it's pretty straightforward. It's delicious. I think I tweeted about it yesterday saying it's like the adult juice box. <laughs> you did. You did. And it truly is. It truly is the adult juice. So box. I've the only time I ever made a Palomo was with uh, squirt grapefruit soda. Yeah. Yep. So instead, this is a little bit less sweet, I would assume. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um. So, yes. So typically they are made with grapefruit sodas and whatnot. I also added uh, 
two teaspoons of simple syrup. But yes, it is still much less sweet, all told. And this is actually the recommendation for the most part is to kind of kick back on the sweetness, let the let the kind of sour be out a little bit front. And also that way you can actually taste mezcal in particular. Okay. Because it does have a, a particular flavor to it. If I say particular one more time, I'm going to cut my own tongue out. Uh, please do. <laughs> uh, and then I'm following that up with Blue Detour again from Evergreen. So okay. great beer. Nice. Back to back weeks, of course, but it's um, it's delicious. This time I'm not going to spill it on my mouse pad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, my mouse pad is a little bit stained from all the drinks that I've spilled on it from the show. <laughs> Mine definitely is stained. I actually ordered a new one. <laughs> I think I need to order a new one soon too. Oh, I just man. love this mouse pad. It's one of the one of the really big ones that like goes across my entire desk. So with that, let's go into last week's predictions. So we've got a couple that'll pay off from some previous episodes. Last episode that we ended with a question of, well, I guess who dies? I had said, if I remember correctly, and I do because I'm reading it, uh, Lorne, some of the Howlers, all of the Greys, Jupiter, and Sophocles. And I was kind yeah, of right. Kind of right. So, But I was I also a lot to, wrong. Yes, a, a lot wrong. Um, I'm going to drink with you, though, here for this one, just because. So, right. cheers. Cheers. <sighs> because you did get one right. You did ultimately get that a couple of Howlers died. And all the Greys. And all the greys, yes. Yep. All of the greys. There are only 11 out of 50 obsidians remaining <laughs> out of his squad, which is nuts. And we um, don't know for sure that Sophocles is safe. I guess. <laughs> Fine. I so feel like question, that would have been an announcement. Yeah, I think Cavax definitely would have said something. It would have been a big deal. Yeah. Ares has another operative. The second question, Ares has another operative on the Sovereign side who is catching Darrow. This was all orchestrated to bring Darrow closer to Octavia was a statement that you made yeah. as kind of our final question. And that's pretty close. It's, yeah, it's not that far off. I would say it's it's close enough to be more right than wrong. Yep. I'm still saying we both drink, though, because I make the rules here. <laughs> okay. So we're both drinking for that one because you were close, but no cigar. <laughs> right. This you wasn't you a guess. Perfectly guess that one. <laughs> this is a statement I made. Mm-hmm. Yep. You just made a statement. Silly. So bold of you. Um, <laughs> words words count. And then words mean a question, something. A question. For, yes, they do. A question from long, long, long ago, um, which we had actually like laughed off at the time because I kind of didn't want you to think about it too seriously after I realized it was kind of kind of like a spoiler in its own right in a way. Could Augustus be allowed to be king? And I'm going to take a drink for it because ultimately, yes, he does become king. So we pushed it before. But. We did push it. Fair point. Oh, it's so fucking good. I could just slam this whole thing. Do That's it. the problem. Nope. Do it, motherfucker. Okay. <laughs> With that, <laughs> let's get into our breakdown of chapter 40 through 46. <laughs> Part four starts off with that great line, of course, which is rise so high in mud you lie right off the bat, which kind of sets the tone for flipping immediately into chapter 40 mud, yeah. which is to say definitely a low point for Darrow throughout the entire series. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but physically and just emotionally yeah it's it's a wonderful little turn of knife too to have darrow repeat that phrase in addition to having us read it right off the bat mm-hmm. as all the soldiers are falling down around him and drowning all around darrow the entire scene where he's got his razor wrapped around his arm and he has to cut his suit off with it and has to activate it and deactivate it so fast so that it doesn't fucking take his arm off yeah but Ugh. can i say what a fucking fatal flaw of that oh yeah <laughs> piece of equipment 
No eject? <laughs> no, no, like mechanical, like non-electrical release. Mm-hmm. How how did that get through R&D? How, how did, they know well enough to EMP it. Was it some sort of limitation of the suit? You would think the electronics would go dead first. You'd want some sort of mechanical release. Yeah, so my, my take on this to some degree is thinking about the way that gold wages war is that they don't do it very often right so they don't really they've they've had iron rains before obviously there have been uprisings quelled over time that have been smaller an iron rain is more of a show of force i think than anything else so the entire idea of a star shell is that it's this big dramatic thing and yes of course there should be a mechanical fail safe built in but I also think that the other part of this is that they haven't had to go to war against people that are as smart as they are. Like they don't fight gold on gold that often and other colors don't have the same like ingenuity that would lead them to to think like this or they've pushed them down so far that they don't. Mm. I mean, yes and no. Yeah, if it the, doesn't mean the, it's right. If the oranges were to revolt, they would absolutely know what to do. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> but all the oranges would have is EMPs and then they would hit you with the wrenches. That would be effective in this situation. <laughs> You're right. They are drowning. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. That's all they would need to do. No, I, I think that a lot of society as a, the society as a whole operates on apathy. And so, yeah. you know, there's just so much of that with the rest of society that they don't really need to improve some of these things or, you know, focus in on them because they're not in a constant state of war. And it, it is almost, it does kind of harken back to that quote that we just read from Carnus: rise so high in mud you lie. Like, it, uh, think about think about Darrow's call sign, secondary call sign of Icarus, like mm-hmm. just hubris, just absolute hubris of the golds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think the whole like gold color with the winged pyramid and everything else also plays into that. It's it's totally a thing. Mm-hmm. So we move on. Thankfully, Darrow gets out of his suit. He also rescues Ragnar, who's the you know the next biggest, and makes sure that he's get at, getting out of it. They come up out of the water and they realize that there's still obviously a retinue of soldiers there. And they silently dispatch a couple, and then the two of them take out everyone. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> it's great. It's fucking great. In particular, the line that when Darrow hands him the razor, where he says, they aren't gods, and then Ragnar just basically goes off and fucking, like, throws a razor through a guy in the air, and, like, everything is not, just... Not without, like, recoiling and dropping it like it was a snake. Oh yeah, no, no, no. I definitely, I definitely want to mention took, that took, and talk about the it razors. It took some convincing. Yeah, I, I think we had kind of talked a little bit about this last week too, and I had tried to skim around over time the the like razor versus gun versus everything else, and I think right here it kind of shows the reluctance of like other colors to use it as well, and it's sort of being like a ruling staff to hold over them mm-hmm. as much as it is a weapon, and it's also. It's for them. It's more of a tool because they are quicker. They're leaner. They're more muscular in every way. And so they're more effective with them. But obsidians a hundred percent can be. It is literally a whip and a sword. It serves a, it serves a societal function as well. Mm -hmm. It is, it is ingenious that it is a whip inside of the society as well. You know, just kind of hearkening back to the sort of slave driving aspect of this whole thing, which is just brutal in its own right. Right. That's what Darrow's fighting against. That's why, like, it's such a such a big deal. Mm-hmm. But Ragnar getting handed one, like you said, he recoils immediately, and then he goes on an absolute killing rampage after he gives him permission with that they aren't gods conversation. 
It's excellent. Um, Darrow also running out without armor, you know, gets shot once in the bicep, which is I mean, it's it's great to see him like fail to some degree in these moments, too, and like see that he's kind of just pure adrenaline. Yeah, to a certain degree. I would like to know exactly how long this sort of interaction takes, because they these are two of like two of the people with the highest sort of physical constitution of their entire army. And they almost fucking died, almost drowned. Like, how did they get anyone else out? So I believe it starts off with Darrow was the first to hit the water. Okay, because then he sees everyone else fall around him. Right. Yeah, that's fair. So he's in first. I, I would agree with you. This is this is quick, although it does take place over six pages. And there yeah. are, there are conversations had between him and the other him and the golds that he's fighting. Like, yeah, it, 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 it felt like it was too much time. And I like by the by the time this was done, I'm like, all right, fucking no one else is getting out. It was surprising to see more survivors after that. Yeah, and I think to speak to that, they're mostly golds and obsidians, right? Like none of the greys lived at all. As as previously mentioned, they were either shot down on the surface as everyone fell beneath or they drowned. Yeah, so. I guess several several was in the mud, wasn't he? He wasn't necessarily in the in the water. Yeah, there were, there were lots in the mud that were getting killed by the golds that were walking through them as well. Right. But they weren't drowning yeah. or suffocating. Several was almost dead. Uh, yes, he was, that's he true. was pretty sure that he was he was going to die. Um, oh, that's another thing that I was curious about. Daryl was in some sort of position that he couldn't move and like this is just me getting into the physics of things he his first cut with his razor was at his forearm Mm -hmm. presumably down i i would assume right like his arms were probably down it's wound around his arm no no no. but arm position probably at his side yeah probably and suddenly there's water going up his neck and that's up to his neck I no, guess. no, there's, there's water creeping up his neck and it, the water wouldn't go up at all unless there was a, another hole for the, for the air to get out. It would go out the armhole. Yeah, but not, but not, not to an elevation higher than that armhole was. And it was at his forearm. Yeah. So he's okay. So he's laying down in the dirt, right? His arms are at his side. Oh, laying down. Right? I, I didn't catch yeah, that. Cause he's like, I, I assumed he was standing. No, he's flat. Okay, he's watching that makes everyone. more sense. Never yeah. mind. Okay, Gripe. I was like, because it's, it's rising around. Right, okay. gone. All right, all right. I was like, he he's landing on his back and he was watching everyone fall and talking about the surface of the water and yeah. Yep, that makes sense. Yeah, cool. So I also you had mentioned obviously the gold talking, uh, the Carthai refusing to Gaius Carthai refusing to surrender to Ragnar at the end here just speaks to the resistance that Daryl Ragnar and the sons face in their ultimate goal of earning freedom mm-hmm. from the current society structure. Yeah. I mean, ugh. I just, the <laughs> Ragnar yelling that he's a man. I want to hear that. Yeah. Loud enough to like out, like out volume the uh, passing ship. Mm-hmm. Like shit, dude. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he's Ragnar's a beast in and of himself, right? And like, he's been dehumanized, and he's finally been like given through Darrow, like this liberating moment of I can actually be like a human and a person, and I can be treated like that mm-hmm. all the time. And he just kind of wants everyone to see it that way, you know? Yep, exactly. I do like the the comment from Darrow. A couple couple lines up from that. This isn't the Iliad. Ragnar, kill this fool. We need his grab boots. 
fuck you, dude. You're pretentious and uh, useless. Yeah, it's it's totally totally utilitarian. We need to grab boots. We need to get to people. You know, like it it totally makes sense. It also kind of harkens to something later too with like Octavia commanding Aja, right? Like it reminds me of that mm-hmm. in a mirror kind of way. You know, sort of the right hand. Yeah, for sure. The executioner. So with that, we move on to chapter 41, Achilles. Achilles. I'm making a big assumption here that everyone knows the story of Achilles. But if you don't, look it up. Yeah, I, I just like it. I feel I don't, so I don't, ingrained I don't in my head. The, I don't know the story of Achilles Crossland. That's not true. <laughs> I can, hope it's not can true. Can you tell it to me? I, I don't want to talk about it if you don't know. Why, do, why the fuck are you I here? Do know. Jesus Christ. Um, Did no, we read that kidding. in high school together? The Iliad? Yeah. I'm a, I would assume so. I think so. I, I read it. I know, read I, it. know I had to I read, read it on it. my own. I know I had to read it in read college. It. I think I read it in high school as well. I definitely read it in high school. Everyone should at some point, at the very least, read a summary of the Iliad. You don't necessarily need to read the whole thing because there are entire sections about weaponry and like just the sheer amount of weapons that they have. Yeah, but it's pretty cool. In modern. Yeah, right in modern dialogue it's completely unnecessary they, but so it is the cool. iliad and the odyssey are one of a very small handful of books that i have prominently displayed on my bookshelf <laughs> right above my booze collection which Excellent. takes more it it takes up more uh more shelves than my books do but the iliad and the odyssey are in there <sighs> pj, PJ. <laughs> we'll fix your bookshelf don't worry about it yeah your uh, your alcohol of- shelf will become a bookshelf there are like, I swear it a few there are a few books most of them are textbooks most of them are the red rising books let's be real uh those so, are in a, a different shelf entirely getting was, back to chapter 41 <laughs> okay <laughs> sounds good sorry sorry let's talk more about how i don't read much and that was the entire point of this podcast <laughs> you lose uh so the the seed with thistle and the distribution of the razors to the obsidians is wonderful the the tension of that boundary of slavery to being broken for the first time in front of them and the obsidians themselves you know being called a slippery slope to give them these weapons as clown says but that slippery slope slides in darrow's direction yeah yeah he knows it's a slippery slope he intends it to be a slippery slope he's pouring soap on the on the communal shower floor yeah yeah he's <laughs> He's trying to get everyone to slide and fall on their asses. Uh, and of course, it's Thistle, you know, that uh, that is the one that lives after we lost, you know, weed in the last chapter and some of the original Howlers. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the original Howlers chasing them around. It's a sad loss, and I think that that hits Severo very hard at the end of that chapter and kind of moving into this chapter. Where do you think, like, Severo's head is going into this chapter? Confused. Fused and probably full of a lot of rage, but not necessarily towards Darrow. I think he's starting to see things from Darrow's perspective. And I think he's probably putting himself in that headspace intentionally. And if that's true, that makes those sacrifices a lot more noble and a lot Mm -hmm. more meaningful as opposed to being senseless and cold. I definitely agree. I think the other part, too, to mention here, to just trade off what you're saying as well, is... Towards the end of the section, right, we figure out what we know about Severo and reflecting on it now, he's got that going into this fight, right? Like he's got the fact that he is half red going into this fight. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he he totally is picking up to to feed off what you're saying. He totally is picking up what Darrow means or what Darrow's fighting for 
because now he actually knows. He'd only found out a couple days ago. Did he find out? Sorry, he'd only no. found out a couple days ago that his father was Ares. No, not at this point. No. Oh, you're right. You're right. No, you're right. he, right. he doesn't know a week yet. afterwards. Yep. Yeah. Nope. Uh, moving forward. <laughs> anyway, he's just a good guy. That's that's what that says. <laughs> My assumption was entirely wrong, and he's just a good guy. He's just a good dude. Just a good dude. Yep. <laughs> uh, he also says, I'm your conscious. I'll f- I follow your ass everywhere. You, so you don't fuck be a that shit. up every time. I fucked it up three times now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm your conscious. I conscience. God damn it. <laughs> conscience. Con it looks like con science. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid. Great quote, though. Great quote. It we're moving on. <laughs> so, you don't want me to dwell on that one? No, we're good. <laughs> it's a quick note, but when Severo returns with the news that Ragnar killed one of the Olympics, it's pretty awesome. Like, it's just a great, great moment uh, as they're on their way and running. Yeah, I mean, it's a great moment, but it also, like, you and I talked about this before. It, it created sort of a really nice narrative way to tell us and tell Darrow what's happening in other parts of the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Like, he's he's kind of the town crier for him at that point. <laughs> Just kind yeah, of zipping yeah, around he, on his grab boots. Right, right. He's zipping around. He, it's very reminiscent of, like, a, his roguish nature in general. You know how he'd like wank off to the bushes and everything else, right? Like it's it's kind of the same sort of Not thing. Not to the just bushes, around in, in the, the background. In the well, in, in to wherever. <laughs> On wank it off in the woods. You know it's yeah. fine. <laughs> All right. But yeah, it, it just kind of speaks to the wily scoundrel nature of him, right? Yeah, exactly. He's yeah. Uh, wily coyote without the uh, for thirst for blood for a uh, certain roadrunner. Yeah. What? <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> I also love this line that comes after that. After Severo decides that they're going to lift everyone up over the wall. I really like kind of this this line in this conversation. Some men have threads of life so strong that they fray and snap those around them. Enough friends have paid for my war. This one's on me. And it's just great because, you know, Severo's obviously trying to get everyone else up and over the wall. Darrow's the only one who made it up there. You know, the grab boots gave out before they were able to get anyone else up. So it completely leaves him stranded and he makes a, a split second decision because everyone else is sacrificed. And so now it's his turn to be the kamikaze. Yeah. And that that line itself, I can <laughs> we're going to go back to. The adaptation, I can absolutely see this line being sort of a uh, end of a scene, I guess, like a, a sort of climax point in a scene. If if we were following standard like TV formats, this would be like the line right before the commercial break. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> I don't think they'll do that. I hope they don't do that. But yeah, it, it's just a very strong, well-written and meaningful line. Yeah, it speaks a lot to Darrow recognizing sort of the, the sacrifice and trust that everyone else has placed throughout the entire book, right? It's it's kind of back on that core theme to some degree. And he's finally like, you know what? Everyone else is sacrificed. It's it's my turn. This mm-hmm. is my war. Yeah. Being so by example, literally. Yeah. Yeah. And he literally like charges through a whole crowd of people gathering around watching the shuttle that Octavia is in. And everyone else is assembled around and disbarking in, you know, Karnas, Fisher, Ajna, and everyone else are on board. And he just, he slaps his razor back and kills someone. He slashes another person. He grabs something off someone's belt, which we later learn is a grenade. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's all 
it's all great. And he just barely, he barely makes the jump, lands it. Gravity's less because of the way the planet is. And he's able to swing himself back up and over. Yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's worthy of noting before that and before all of this, he's kind of a dick to everyone. Nope. Take off all your armor. We're running. We're going as fast as we fucking can. And in order to not mm. let you like argue, we're going at my pace. So, uh, whatever you want to do, but I'm going this way. True. True. And they, yeah, they fucking know that he's really, really goddamn fast. Yeah. They do all take off with him, you know, and that's, that's mm-hmm. also insane. I think the only person who's said to be like physically faster, I think they said something about Severo in the first book. Um, well, there's the, uh, the scene where he runs out of the jam field after drinking the wine and within a minute he's gone two and a half kilometers or whatever and he's taking the castle. The chapter ends with them in the bay and, uh, Darrow's running up and he's just made it. And then he, we move into chapter 42, death of a gold Mm -hmm. and (laughs) he lands in the bay and there's six praetors, there's Octavia there's some obsidians, there's Aja, there's Fitchner, and there's Karnas. And they're all kind of flabbergasted by the fact that he made it. <laughs> oh, yeah, here we go. What? Karnas laughs, looking at, uh, looking about to see if the others notice how ridiculous a present just fell into, uh, fell in their laps. Yeah, and, and for the record, I don't know how many people know this, but I didn't realize that Jove was the shorthand for Jupiter, or the general slang for Father God, which is why, like, by Jove or Karnas, you know, kind of kind of makes sense in that moment and there's just so much more context to life provided with that little piece of information <laughs> um because it's, it's a frequent kind of like i don't know you, yeah. you hear like archaeologists in movies be like by jove or whatever else and <laughs> archaeologists in movies <laughs> of course it's always archaeologists is you it, know it's that is it just type. indiana jones <laughs> it's just indiana jones and has Milo he ever have he, has he ever said Atlantis. my joke <laughs> i don't i don't really know uh, but you know, those are the type of people that you imagine saying that. So <laughs> I have some friends that are archaeologists. They do not say that. Well, they're wrong. So also, you know, the line itself, the carnage says, is it looks like Jove just shit you out, which is extra funny because, you know, Zeus, Jupiter actually like had people like jump out of his body, like leap out of his head and stuff. So it's like it's rational that like Zeus could have shat him out. <laughs> okay. You know? is that what you're hanging up on no i just i just think it's i think it's interesting i think it's funny it is funny it is funny there's there's layers to this joke (laughs) i don't think they're supposed to be there's layers to the poop joke it's good it's a good good. poop joke it's a good poop joke Mm -hmm. (laughs) so darrow's plan with the grenade goes awry obviously as you know he's planning on just blowing everyone up octavia is smart and notices that he doesn't have grab boots on and flips him over and the grenade rolls out of the the thing by doing a barrel roll, basically. Do a barrel roll. Which leaves Darrow in an unfortunate position. Uh, unfortunate in, like, on the ground and grenadeless? Yes. Yep. yep. That. Very, yep. very that's, unfortunate. That's pretty unfortunate. So uh, the, the four of them, the four opponents, kind of sit there debating what's the best thing to do now that they have the Darrow gift in their lap, right? Karnas is like, let me kill him. Octavia is very much of the opinion, no, like, you shouldn't kill him. Aja will just behead him. Fitcher's like, no, 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 wait, we should we should imprison him. And then Octavia comes to the conclusion that, no, Fitchner, you kill him. He's your student. It's more apt. Yeah. Also, film it. Before we go any farther, yep. instead of jumping and, like, grabbing onto the uh, 
the ship flying away and pulling himself up with his bad arm. Why didn't he just throw the grenade into the open door? Because he would have fallen to the ground and died? No, before he jumped. Instead of jumping onto the ship. Because it wasn't, it wasn't going to make it. There was no guarantee. It was, it, that would have been out. way easier to do than jumping and like climbing onto I a moving ship. I don't know, man. I also don't think that he was planning on necessarily blowing everyone up. No, that's true. He makes makes the demand to land the ship. That's a good point. Yeah. He could suicide mission it, but I don't think he necessarily is planning on that. Right. Good point. Okay. I just want him to be out for blood. (laughs) Every time. Just fucking get him. Mm -hmm. So he goes off and Karnas decides that he's going to kill him anyway. Shouts, you know, his name charges at him. And uh, Darrow very quickly dispatches him, like almost with no effort. Yeah, it feels like pretty, Um, pretty easy. Yeah, he ultimately does get slashed, of course, through his collarbone. But he does end up beheading Karnas before, you know, repeating back to him the mud line. Yeah, which is just great as like the last words that you hear. Yeah, it's your own. It's pretty true. And then getting a razor pulled through your body from the sharp end. It seems pretty, uh, pretty brutal. Yeah, it seems like a bad time. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm not into that. <laughs> no, yeah, it sounds bad. It, it does so, sound unfortunate. He then gets beheaded and basically just kicked out of the back of the shuttle, which is great. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lot. It sounds like a, it sounds like a bad time. For, and then uh, then he immediately threw the razor through the chest of a of a was it a gray or just another Praetor? It was another Praetor, I think. Um, but yeah, through through the razor killed someone immediately. He's kind of fighting back and Octavia is like, you know what, Aja, just like shut him up. And so she punches him so hard he thinks he died, which <laughs> is it's pretty bad. And then she like just grabs him and slams him into the roof of the <laughs> shuttle. Like, ouch. Yeah. Jesus. Yep. Kill your student or yep. you are not loyal. Right. Right. And it kind of the the context of Fitchner's casual resistance here as Octavia calls to behead him, comes to a head after, you know, he obviously says Severo's alive. Fitchner breathes a little bit of relief. And then we get this giant ass fucking game changing book reveal. I mean, it's not completely game changing, but it is very important reveal that has been here for two books that Fitchner is, in fact, Ares. Yes, I believe I made this guess at one point early on as a joke, and uh, this caught me completely fucking off guard. Yeah, <laughs> I had no yeah. idea. I had no no inkling that that was going to happen. So you were shocked. You I were was. shocked by the whole reveal. I was. Hmm. I was entirely so I guess it's shocked. Important. It's important to talk about the implications. What kind of implications? Sorry, I grabbed an ice cube with my mouth, which was unfortunate timing for that. So... <laughs> Um, when, when talking about Fitchner and the implications in general of, of the entire thing, right, is now that we know that Ares is Fitchner, we can track back Ares throughout the two books, right? And the influence and impact. So I remember we had a conversation a while back about the sort of whisper gem and that whisper gem being delivered to Darrow, Right. And him having a delay on like the Civil War thing. But Fitchner was fucking there, you know? Right. Yeah. So Fitchner was there. Ares was there in present and thought the Civil War was a good idea that Darrow was doing. We we can backtrack even further and look at the first book as we also get context on this later in the, the chapter in which 
Darren Fisher kind of talk about, but we can think about the fact that he had a lot of different irons in the fire, like Titus. We get reflections on the sort of carving and where some of the funding came from for this through Fitchner. We we figure out, yeah, there's just so much context here to Fitchner being the guy behind this all. Right. And so I guess one of my questions about this, obviously, I completely understand not wanting to like, what does he say? He didn't want to leave the uh, the fate of his plan in the hands of a teenager's acting ability. Totally makes mm-hmm. sense. But after the Institute and after the Academy, why, why still keep that secret? Like, I feel like he, I feel like it would have been beneficial after all of his schooling to have been let in on the secret, at least a little bit. So I feel like he was kind of starting to play into that to some degree. I don't feel like they had enough time, right? And Darrow decided to kind of throw off sort of the, the reins and the chains in such a way where he didn't really get to communicate with him, where he wasn't being tracked, right? Or mm-hmm. there wasn't someone else around. So if you think about earlier in this book, which is where I, I think that there was potential for this to happen, they they have a couple of interactions, right? There's one where Fitchner and Darrow are, like Fitchner's walking Darrow back to his room when the pink is in the room. Mm-hmm. But in reality, it is the pink. And then Mustang shows up, or is it Victra? I can't remember. Someone shows up, have that conversation. Um, but like he's kind of testing him in those moments. There's also the conversation in the room with Octavia. And uh, when when Darrow has the Oracle wrapped around his arm, there's that there. Yeah. And those stretches of conversation where like he's in the scene, but he doesn't have time. And we also find out later here that he didn't have time simply because he was also running operations. You know, he is also in charge of a rebellion. And Darrow has been doing fine on his own. I think the time still would have came. But I don't I don't think there was a better. Yeah, moment. that's that's fair. That's a good point. Yeah. I also think it puts into context the the rest of sort of the the pixie ishness that you were pointing out with him earlier, too. Right. Like he he doesn't really care about this stuff for the most part. Mm-hmm. He really just cared about the rebellion, but he had to he had to act the part of caring about rising inside of society. For yeah, so long. that's true. It was interesting to see him speak with the red accent because he doesn't naturally have that. So was that him just trying to be relatable to Darrow or was that him? Like, does he, has he immersed himself enough where that's his like comfortable speaking tone? I'm sure that it's his comfortable speaking tone. And the reason that I say that I'm sure is because he ultimately is Aries and is delivering messages to these people so at the very least he has to be able to imitate it right or or if the other option is if aries is kind of a persona yeah and it's it's a character so to speak and getting into that character involves him getting into that voice as well that fits too that makes sense it struck me as a little bit odd boyo and everything i i got the bloody damn would be a good sort of hint like a silent nod Hmm. but the boyo and everything was it seemed a little much from somebody who's not a red yeah so boyo i don't think is reserved for reds in any capacity i also am pretty sure you said boyo before has he yeah okay pretty sure in the institute it just kind of fits his sort of tambourine tone but Fair the rest of it yes i i do think that part of it is a, there's a mixture of it i think that you're right on the side of it being a persona 
And, you know, when you submerge yourself in that for so long and you're surrounded by people that are talking similarly, you know, especially in this scenario later in the chapter, which we'll talk about when we get there, you know, he's got two reds around him. And I'm sure Darrow also wants to feel comfortable. And so it kind of feels like a combination of all of those things. Right. Severo, especially in in those moments. But we'll we'll talk about that when we get there. Any other thoughts on Fitchner being revealed as Ares here? Oh, man. I... It makes me want to go back and read the first book again. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're like, I want to track down all of the, I, the Aries bits. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure there are little breadcrumbs that I could follow. Mm-hmm. Little hints. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very it's all very cleverly concealed in such a way where you would never assume. But it all makes sense in retrospect. Yeah, it's it's very well done. But the, the jig is up. You know, it's no longer Lorne. Um, and so there's no more kind of speculating around. I think you were pretty much, I don't know. I think, I think Lauren was your primary assumption for the most part. Yeah, that was, that was the person I mainly thought like that's, if I had to bet before this chapter, I would have bet on Lauren. Yeah, that makes sense. So plenty more to talk about on the side of Aries when we get to his section and kind of talking through his life, Fitchner's life. But before we do that, we have to get into chapter 43, the sea. I think this chapter is grandiose in the way that it builds scenes, and it's a gr- it it is probably the biggest internal monologue of all of the chapters in this book. It's very much a reflection on barely being alive and recovering, and sort of your not your life flashing before your eyes, but remembering important moments because you are you know in a coma or comatose or you know barely waking, and. I think it's I think it's a wonderful chapter that kind of paints a very specific picture, but we don't have a whole lot to talk about here. Right. Yeah, we don't have a ton. But it is it is a good chapter. Yeah, and I do want to start off just by saying that first part, you know, like the first two pages, it really is a great moment when he's cycling back in his life before he became this big golden warrior and he was just a little red. And I, I love that shire like warmness that you kind of get from him remembering all of the stuff from home that you know the first book mentions and also like the different things that he longs for the the door being open and the the sound of the chairs and the smells and mm-hmm. everything else just the kind grinding of, of coffee you. and yeah it, it submerges you in that world yeah and then and then the fact that what he always woke up to or thought about while he was waking up wasn't wasn't any of those pleasant thoughts and mundane things but the dread of his dad closing the door, knowing that he, his job was dangerous and it could be the last time he ever sees him or hears it. Hears him. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's just great. I truly like this internal monologue and this like flashback fear really builds like a different side of Darrow that we haven't seen since the very beginning. And in the very beginning, it didn't really click yet because we didn't know what Darrow was going to be. Yeah, I've I've mentioned or I mentioned off air. I was like, now that you've read this, I think you'd have more appreciation for the first 50 pages. But that doesn't mean that it's a good hook for the book. I, I think you I'd know? have more appreciation for the content of the first 50 pages. I yeah. don't know about the actual writing. Sure. So we uh, we move on from the conversation on the early chapters to a bunch of quick updates that kind of get dumped on us over conversation and exposition. He's he's here cuddling with Mustang you know, their hearts are beating together and whatever else. And he's feeling that warmth. We, we get a quick update in general, since the violent exchange aboard the shuttle and the claiming of the Aegean, the Citadel Mars has fallen or been reclaimed, 
without destruction for the most part by the Augustans. Roke routed and took 80% of the Bologna fleet. Um, he was called Nelson Reincarnate, which we looked up right before the show because you're like, what's who's Nelson? And I was like, I don't know. And uh, it turns out the most reasonable reference, it feels like, is Horatio Nelson from the Napoleonic Wars. He was a naval commander who uh, routed and won every conflict that he was involved in. So it seemed like the most reasonable assumption. Yeah, seems to make the most sense. Or it's just another fabled, what, what, Imperator? Was that yeah, the, Imperator would be the yeah. probably the right word. Yeah. So another fabled Imperator of of their society. That's who I assumed it was. I didn't. I didn't even take into consideration that it could have been somebody historical. But I guess it makes sense. Yeah, I, I dug through all the text files for the books and couldn't find any other reference to a Nelson outside of this one. So it made the most sense um, pulling it up and looking at it that way. Okay. But yeah, so Roke ultimately also claimed thirty percent of those ships for himself. And now has his own fleet that rivals Darrow's fleet. So when you when you get thirty percent of the ships, is there like mm-hmm. a draft? Like that's a I, good question. Do you get to choose who who chooses the first ship? I'm sure that's I feel like I'm sure that's set out, and I'm sure that like bureaucracy exists. But I'm curious about I it. I feel like Roke gets first pick though, right? Because he did all the the fighting. Or in does the he sky. Get, does he get to pick the first thirty percent? Do they, do they like snake draft it? They got to snake, <laughs> snake draft it, right? Even though it's just two pit of Pit Viper draft. You know? pit, pit Viper draft. Perfect. You're within the world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we also learned that uh, Nero is okay as well, which is a big deal, of course. He's fine. He's going to be king of Mars. Woohoo. Mm-hmm. We learned that Severo is also all good. He's totally fine. He's been spending time in here, as has Roke. They've both been checking in on him. We also find out that Fitchner has left Octavia with a bit of a scar. He actually slashed back and injured her when jumping out with Darrow. Good on him. Good on him. Too bad he couldn't just get her get her head right off. That would have been great. Yep. Good way to end it. Just right away. We also find out that supposedly the entire house of Bologna has been wiped out, except for Cassius and his mother. We do find out for sure that the patriarch died, as well as most of the rest of the family, including Carnus, who was beheaded. Yeah, we, um, we know everyone is two re- is left. I, th- I think it's quote unquote reported dead, except for Cassius and his mother. So I'm I'm expecting some of them to show up not dead, but that's just I don't know. I like conspiracies. I really do. I enjoy them. And I expect that to happen. Plot twist. Yeah. 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 And. I think in general, it's it's obvious to say because Cassius is still alive and as well as his mom, you know, there's there's the family is still out there. The blood is still beating. And Cassius is obviously kind of the the rival to Darrow in a lot of ways. So that confrontation still exists and is still looming. Right. We also, in our quick bit of information, get uh, the unity of Arcos Julii and the Telemannises underneath Nero's banner. They've all agreed to rally for Mars And that has attracted the gas giants. So everyone is kind of meeting here on Mars to have a formal conversation about going to war with the rest of society to turn over Octavia's rule. As they should. All over a fucking silly duel. (laughs) I don't know if that's it. Like, it's more than just the silly duel. I mean, a lot of it's pride at this point, but no, but but the duel was, as far as I understood, kind of the the straw that broke the camel's back. As far as like allowing them to see the uh, 
the way that Octavia has been leading in not the way she should have been. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just about the duel. It could be just about the duel. It's not just about the duel, but the duel kicked it all off. <laughs> right now. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So we, we get all of this, uh, this exposure to these conversations from Mustang for the most part and other intervening characters kind of jump in and out randomly or their perspectives, you know, from Mustang. And uh, she makes a big point that he needs to part ways with the Jackal and to make no more deals with him because he's obviously going to be scheming. She knows that she he was doing that before. Then after they have that conversation, they get to fucking. Yeah, they uh, they fuck each other. Ooh, bouch, wow, wow. OK, <laughs> that's enough of that. That's enough of that. Ugh. Oh, you might be right. How unfortunate. Uh, chicka, so, chicka, bow, chicka, chicka, wow, chicka, bow, saxophone beats, suave. Are you trying to, are you trying to play careless whisper? Yes. Careless whisper. Exactly. The intro. Thank you. <laughs> exactly what it is. Did I know the song title or name? No, I did not. Chapter 44, the poet. So I, I really think this this chapter opens up very strong with uh, Roke's joke to Daxo. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just so funny. It plays into Daxo's character and kind of the telemanises in general and how everyone like kind of communally groans at the, the banana stand joke. It's just <laughs> it's so funny. Um, but then Daxo, like a couple of seconds later, laughs because he figures it out. Like, it's just, oh, man, it's. <laughs> what is it it's like the giants have little ridiculous elves inside them waiting to spring out and cackle i i loved that (laughs) line so much yeah between him and pax both laughing the same way like all i can imagine is like little gnomes or something piloting fucking giant i don't know red-haired golds yeah i mean except for daxo daxo is gold hair but yeah Mm. Well, yeah. does Daxo have hair? He's got Daxo the, might be bold. Daxo's bold. He has the uh, the yeah. golden angels tattooed on his head. I think he has a red beard, though. Or is that yeah. Kavix? Kavix has a red beard. Okay, Daxo does not have a beard. But yes, he's got the he's got the tattoos on his head. They're fucking weirdos in the gold society, and for that reason, I am amending my previous conversation. I don't know if I said. I don't know what I said. Honestly, most of these predictions, I only know I made the predictions because you have them written down and you write them as I say them. Uh, so any Correct. statement I make, I don't remember most of the time. Not be, not necessarily because I'm drinking, but just because you and I talk a lot and we talk through a whole lot of shit. But like we go through a lot of content and I don't commit any of it to memory. And a lot of it's just off the top of my head. But I think I think the Telemannises will absolutely, without a doubt, go along with whatever Darrow says. Yeah. Yep. Right. We had talked before about the favor, right? That was kind of the big yeah. the big note. Here I think I think I had said that it would be a little bit touchy and maybe a mm-hmm. little bit not not cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that this is sort of illustrative of them and him. They'll get along no matter what. I think mm-hmm. they kind of fit right in. So we're back to talking about the conversation with the poet. So the the joke is great. The joke is great. The banana stand is just giggle worthy throughout. 
but we the core of the chapter obviously with the title is going to be chasing down and having conversations with Roke, right? One of the conversations that they have that I really like the quote right off the bat is, but this is why we fight, isn't it? Darrow responds, for land. Roke looks at him and says, for peace in whatever way we find it. Isn't that why you fight? And that is like totally a poet's answer. But also just a not a warrior's answer, I think. Yeah, which Darrow, you know, at this point is just a weapon, you know, kind of direct him and he's nonstop momentum. Mm-hmm. That's true. Unstoppable arrow. D arrow, perhaps. D arrow. <laughs> I also appreciate that post that con- post that comment and throughout this entire thing, Roke isn't really suing for peace between them. He's not even trying to find common ground as he thinks about all of the friends who've died and everything else. He very much knows and kind of feels where he stands with Darrow in the moment. He feels like a tool, you know, like a horse just to be ridden, as he says, and uses that metaphor. But to kind of cap that conversation, he makes the comment that it's minutes to make a friendship, moments to break, years to rebuild. And kind of hurts because even Darrow feels obviously hurt and offended because he's like, Roke was always the brother above all else. Like he was always just trying to help. Always doing the right thing. But also, Darrow knows that he's very, very intentionally stayed distant from pretty much everyone. Roke most of all. And I I wonder if that has to do with the fact that he knows... Well, I, I know, like, he's mentioned it. He knows that most of these golds, if not all of these golds, will be his enemy when the uprising begins. So he doesn't want to get too close to him. Yeah, he's he's definitely made comment about it. I think that there's also a hope um, within him, and I think he's mentioned it once or twice, where he hopes that some of the golds will see, and he kind of now, knows that some will because now. they're reformers. Yes, yeah, but not not right off the bat. But not not within the last, not within the time that he's talking about sort of using Roke. Yeah, I would argue, I would argue with you or agree with you and say that pretty much since he told Severo, his opinion has shifted yeah, a little bit. Exactly. And that was a couple days ago, like a, a couple weeks, weeks ago, yes. whatever. Yeah, right. Now, like Roke wasn't days in Roke his was with him for the entirety of the Academy, right? Days so. in Darrow's memory. <laughs> well, right, because Darrow's been knocked out a bunch of times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's um it's a it's a tough moment between the two of them for sure. Oh yeah. But but there is clearly a path to redemption that Roke lays out for him. It doesn't lay it doesn't lay out the path, but lays out the the fact that like they will mend this. They're not mm-hmm. there yet, but he's not I, I have pretty decent confidence that Roke will stay loyal and will work with Darrow to mend the friendship. I think Roke is um is definitely at his heart a dedicated character to whatever the cause is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Severo effectively ends that conversation telling him that the red, violet, and pink have been captured. You know, I, I have to mention obvious it feels very obvious on this read, you know, like rereading that and thinking about it, but on reread, again, I seriously thought of it as dancer being captured, even though like I should have immediately thought Evie Harmony Mickey. Should have should have just been the yeah that's that's what that's what I assumed correctly because I'm smarter than you. Ooh. <laughs> Sick burn. Any other thoughts on forty four? Nope. Can't say I do. Can't say I do. 
Chapter 45, Gifts. I think right off the bat, we have to talk about the fact that Victra is once again bringing us back into the Jackal's lair. What thoughts do you have here on Victra and the Jackal? Um, I have Victra's trust. Or yeah. she has my trust. I don't know. Yep. I think she is someone who understands that alliances do not need to be friendships. And I, I don't I don't see anything really fishy going along or going on between the two of them. I think she's proven time and time again that she's loyal to Darrow and his cause. And I, I don't I don't think that there's anything really mm, nefarious going on. I think she's probably doing something on the side to, I don't know, gain wealth or gain something for herself. But I don't think it has anything to do with interfering with Darrow's plans. Okay, that uh, that checks out for me on the side of Victra. So you don't think that she's got anything else nefarious going on? Yeah. Okay. Or not well, nefarious towards Darrow's goals. Got Maybe it. So nefarious. Like I, I don't. I don't think she really has many scruples in that respect. Like, <laughs> sure. But I, I think she's certainly. Uh, Loyal to Darrow. Okay. Okay. I can't say the same about the Jackal. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's fair. I think we can move into the part where we get to talk about the Jackal. We're back in his lair, you know, brought here by Victra and Harmony. Lair is, is a good word for it. It kind of is. You know, it, it was ultimately, it was the Bologna's castle right beforehand. But now it's, it's kind of his lair as he's taking it over. And I kind of get this like dark library cigar room fire roaring in the background vibe as i was reading this Mm -hmm. so jackal is his usual sniveling self here as well i kind of like how he's shifted to become a more conventional version of a a jackal (laughs) (laughs) and uh and how he's kind of shifted to kind of be the the sort of pick at the flesh beast and kind of he's not playing the main game he's playing a side game because that's what he finds interest in yeah and it's also where he can be influential mm-hmm. he knows yeah. that he he does not have the favor of his father and he understands that that means he can't really be influential in the main sort of spotlight of society yeah so he's kind of carving his own path his own sort of fame or infamy whatever you want to call it out of the uh sort of shadows of society i uh i definitely agree with you i think it's it's very interesting how he's kind of working this back net in a similar way to another character who we've heard a lot about, but I don't we we haven't met in any capacity, which is Quicksilver, of course, who's mentioned a number of times. I think Quicksilver is only mentioned like once, maybe twice, but I only remember one. Yeah, I I think he's mentioned specifically with the Jackal a lot because they're com- they're competing in the. Um, space of media, media right okay. most of all but yeah i it's definitely a, a whole thing so i it's really interesting though obviously the way that he kind of is is his sniffling self and he's trying to lay out the plan darrow brings these gifts obviously which are very interesting the the one of petrichor for victra harkens back to the conversation that they had when they were deciding to reset sort of their friendship and relationship which was interesting after he you know, kissed her on the forehead and whatnot. <laughs> Called her sister. <laughs> Called her sister. Yep. <laughs> uh, which is uh, the the bottled petrichor, which is, you know, 
fantastic for her. It totally harkens back to that conversation. And um, the jackal opens his brown leather box and surprise, it's a raid. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah, so we we never learn what was inside the box. What's in the box? But we, uh, we do ultimately get confronted with the rest of what we're dealing with for the rest of this chapter, which is the raid. Yes. And it's pretty fucking cool, but pretty straightforward. And also, I don't think the Jackal was truly, like, surprised by it. I think he was surprised. Uh, Or rather, I think he was fairly disingenuous when he was talking to Darrow and, like, thanking him for saving him. It seemed really kind of out of character and a little bit forced. To be thankful? Because he was thankful the first time that Darrow saved him as well yes kind of but kind of he was directly thankful yeah i don't know it just all of his con like everything he said i could i imagined it as feigning surprise sure like through gritted teeth he was kind of saying these things yeah and that makes me wonder we know that he's got like harmony and evie and mickey captive I can't imagine he put, like put off getting information out of them, and I can't imagine that they'd have much of a reason to keep Darrow's identity secret. Yeah, like, I would say Harmony definitely like, doesn't really have a, a horse in the game there. Like, if Harmony wants to get out alive, I think her first and most obvious choice is to give up Darrow as a bargaining chip. Do you think she would, though? Yes, she seems so she convicted would. against the gold cause that I don't know that she'd give him up, even if it were a distant hope. For her own life? I don't, I don't know. I don't feel like she's that selfish. I feel like she's still committed to the cause. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess. Evie, though? Yeah. Evie, maybe. You know? Like, Evie is, is definitely unclear. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think Mickey would. But I, I think Evie, yeah, that's a good point about Harmony. I think Evie is probably the, the most likely person to crack or just give up Darrow as a bargaining chip pretty quickly in a torture situation. Yeah. I think it would happen pretty much immediately. So I don't think, I don't think the Jackal, if that, if that was the case and she gave up the information, I don't think the Jackal wouldn't know about it by the time Darrow got there and saw them captive. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. Hmm. Just trying to piece it together in a way that doesn't, you know. No, it, I I completely understand. Like you don't have to. I, you don't have to like. You know, I and respond. I don't. I don't think I. I don't think I have to respond. So I think that you have an interesting perspective. Yep, that's fine. There's there's that's my a, pin in it. That's a fair, fair thing yep. to say. So, I I think I think just to mention, kind of building up to the point that you were talking about, I think it's funny. You know, we get a brief interlude here where Severo considers blowing his head off. It's kind of kind of funny. You can tell that he's he kind of just maybe he should, you know, in that moment. I don't know. Yeah. And we we've kind of had the conversation, but just to cement it, do you really think do you think that the jackal suspects anything? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the jackal knows. You think the jackal already has information from Evie or otherwise? Yes. I think okay. I think he knows that Darrow, maybe not that Darrow is a red, but that Darrow is an agent of the Sons of Ares. That checks out. So anything else inside of the gifts chapter? Uh, I just want to know what was in the box. What's in the, What's box? In the box? 
What's in the box? <laughs> For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, it's a movie called Seven by David Fincher. Yeah. Uh, Go watch it. It is referenced pretty regularly with the what's in the box, box thing, but it's... Uh, you've, you've probably seen the meme and you don't get the meme until you've yep. seen the end of the video or the movie. Yeah. So... Yeah, yep. it's a uh, oh, killer cast. It's <laughs> a shitty joke. <laughs> That's a really, really low shitty joke. <laughs> Who boy? <laughs> no, but it, it truly is. It's a uh, Morgan Freeman, Brad Pitt, Kevin um, Spacey, well, Gwyneth right, Paltrow. Yeah. Kevin Spacey is more a voice than an actor. Um, I think he literally has four lines in the entire movie or something like that. I mean, wouldn't that make him more of an actor than a voice? No, because no, he's not in the movie, except for uh, you see him uh, running around and stuff. No, I mean, it could have been a body double for all you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, chapter 46, <laughs> Brotherhood. This is where a bulk of our, our discussion today is going to come from, because um, there's a lot here. But yeah, so Dancer's back right off the bat, which is great. I, I loved kind of hearing his voice again and kind of getting back into his character and his cadence. It was awesome to have him kind of return. The moment he said register at the end of the sentence, I immediately jumped back to Carl Urban as his cast in the show. <laughs> just immediately called that back to the boys. Like I just I immediately was like, yep, perfect. Yeah, I could see it. You'd have to be smaller. Yeah, like a hobbit. Yeah. Hobbit version of Carl Urban. Carl Suburban. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, shit. <laughs> but yeah. It's so great to see Dancer again. How do you feel about seeing Dancer again? Heartwarming. I like Dancer. Dancer makes me happy. He's a good dude. He is a good dude. Out of the the group of the original. He's he's a good radical terrorist. (laughs) (laughs) A heartwarming radical terrorist, you know? I like like the little bit of history, too, that we get on the Reds from Dancer at this point inside of the conversation, pointing even further to that Irish ancestry. You know, he kind of speaks to the reason that they make the comments and have the language that they do. He did. He did research. Yeah. Yep. Which is great. It's, it's just, it's excellent to see, you know, also Mickey rolls back inside of the scene and we get that conversation as well. Um, we get a lot of guilt from Mickey. Actually, interestingly enough, he does obviously mm-hmm. feel guilty for his part in what he was doing beforehand. Yeah. Yeah, he does. I don't know how much guilt that should like, I, I I don't know how much weight that should carry, though. Yeah. Because of just his position in society, he doesn't really have much of a choice in any of that. I guess he kind of does a little bit, but he's he's not anyone to be making rules or making sort of radical changes to the way society works. But yeah, absolutely. He's He's not trying to, like, dig into any of any of that meat necessarily that said he was still holding slaves essentially i would call them more like hoes he was more a pimp than a slaver yes yes and no right like i it's it's understandable from both perspectives to some degree i think that not that you should strive to be either but no, no, right. I think Harmony is overblowing it, calling him a slave. Like, it's a little bit over the top calling him a slaver. But I do also think that there's some merit to her point. Oh, there, right? there's absolutely merit. And there, there's an argument to, me, to be made that she's right. 
like Evie, Evie is a great example. So if we think to Evie, Evie is a very harmed individual by Mickey and by what she was put through. And so that's where my head goes with slaver. There are other proponents of it that feel like employer. And so that's where I think, as you had mentioned, Ho is closer. Yeah. Were <laughs> uh, they paid? Well, I mean, that I don't know. Right. Right. I, I guess, guess that, like how that else would they depends. survive? That kind of depends. Yeah. Um, right. I, I guess like my assumption is, is that there's got to be some form of exchange, be it like, I guess they're taken care of by him and his money. I guess like that could be it as opposed to being paid. You know, that that is more servitude than at that point. If they're, you know, kept in rooms. Right. And it's a it's definitely a tough, tough point to tough needle to thread. And I think Mickey is not guiltless by any stretch or without without needing to be needing repayment to society but you know he's um it's it's nice to see him kind of repent to some degree yeah that's true so during the meeting of the minds we finally see kind of our core sons of aries together for the first time and right off the bat Severo jokes hey look it's all pricks for once <laughs> let's tell sexist jokes <laughs> I couldn't even get through it without laughing. <laughs> like it's just so, it's so ridiculous. No, but it, like it's, I could see it said from Severo in a completely flat, sort of sarcastic, non. I, I don't know. I don't know the right way to describe the tone that I'm like picturing, but it's it's almost cold and pointing out that they're all men. And just making kind of an off the wall thing that they could be doing or that society would be doing if if they were other people like, oh, we're inadvertently a boys club. Let's make dick jokes. Yeah, I, I do. I do agree. I just think it's funny to kind of like set the tone of the whole scene because oh, the yeah. rest of this becomes super serious in <laughs> Fitchner's own way. Right. Like it is serious, but Fitchner kind of tells it in a joking tone, even as he like rolls through it. Although that joking tone turns to like extreme nihilism. At points, apathy. Too. So it's, yeah, at maybe I don't know if it's apathy because he's he's doing something about it. You know, I yeah, there there are bits of it that are kind of he he reflects on it as him being apathetic in in the moment. But yeah, so there's a lot to cover here. But Fitchner's origin as Aries is absolutely heartbreaking, and I think it's in a very different way as heartbreaking as Darrow's origin. Yeah, but it also makes total sense. Like it makes complete sense that this is the origin of Ares. Right, right. So I had earlier today um, shot you a message about covering the the prequel books, the Sons of Ares. You um, didn't. You didn't name them. They're graphic novels. You okay, just so said they're the called graphic the Sons. <laughs> yes. So they're they're called the Sons of Ares. Right now, there's two out. They're each about 150 pages, and it covers this part of time in which Fitchner is becoming Ares. I'm in. Yeah. So at the, we've, we've agreed at this point at the end of dark age, we're going to figure out a way as to best cover the sons of Ares books. As we we've noted that a couple of the other podcasts haven't yet. And we think that it would, it's kind of important and it's a much neglected part of the sort of core fandom. That said, shout out to a couple of the other podcasts. Like we've been interacting with a lot of them. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, but would you would Hell you, Reaper and Heller Potter? Excellent. Would you want to do these in lieu or in addition to the sort of interlude short stories we've been doing? 
as like a single so, episode for each of them? I, it it depends. My only trepidation is with potential longer term spoilers. So because okay. I haven't read them yet. So myself. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, wait until we're done yep. with the whole series before doing them, just in case it spoils other things. Yep, exactly. Okay. So post-Dark Age is kind of the plan. Short stories in between is still kind of the, the rough, rough idea. Okay, sounds good. There's, uh, there's our game plan, everyone. But regardless, we're still planning on covering pretty much the entirety of what exists inside of the Red Rising universe. Actually, we're covering everything that Pierce Brown has written and published. So oh, far. Spoiler. So, Oh, spoiler, there's a hint if you've been listening. There is another piece of fiction that you can get a head start on if you have not yet read yes. it. Crossland gave it to me as a present for Christmas. And yep. it is sitting on my little table right there. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a good one. It I've also includes it. a uh, snippet or a short story from the another uh, another short story author that we've covered. In this podcast so it's good we'll uh we'll talk about it when we get there but that's a that's your little hint maybe someone will figure it out and tweet it at us if you do maybe we'll uh do something i don't know who knows we'll so give you I, lots of love and probably lots of, uh crossland no he will specifically will not he will publicly nope thank god for it so uh <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a lot to cover inside of that origin though i i think that what what's so interesting is the whole thing of of kind of painting sort of what a bronzy's life looks like as a gold right to some degree like just basically being in charge of a mining contract being a middle management <laughs> to <laughs> some degree right like fincher was basically a middle manager like he didn't have anything to do with war like most people do you know most people aren't these prideful houses that are warring over territory or whatever else like almost every gold we deal with is peerless scarred which is 0.3 percent of the population yeah yeah <laughs> we're we're dealing with strictly the high class right so yeah. there are other golds out there that are obviously like lower tier but they're still important you know in their own right to society and they do stand alone and above that's not to say that they aren't also like revered or good duelists obviously fitchner is a very good duelist um but they don't have like the familial standing or anything else to kind of push themselves above but yeah so fitchner ultimately is working gets injured and then ends up in a hospital with a near low colors and everything else and there are people and he ultimately meets his eventual wife Bryn. there mm-hmm. falls in love with her she gets genetically altered by a carver who then allows for them to have a kid they have a kid his name is severo and half red half gold yes yeah short little it's dude short little dude um it's it's kind of a great story until it becomes heartbreaking in which the carver gets caught has to turn turns them in for a lower sentence and as opposed to punishing him they basically just kill Bryn. right yeah so that's something i'm curious about how yeah. could fitchner achieve a position of rage night with this on his record or does this not come down on him at all i don't think it comes down on him at all and i think that kind of feeds into the like she's just another mark in in terms of like the larger board she's another statistic she's barely even a statistic but, but how would this not how would he not be punished by this like for this 
That is a great question that I think will be answered in the prequel. Okay. I think I, I truly like that's that's my thought as well. Like, I think that there are obvious avoidances that are probably played because he's a gold inside a society. Right. And I don't feel like golds really get punished for anything. Yeah, but not like an like wrongful one. dueling. Yeah, he's not. He's not important. But I think that's why they didn't pay attention to it either. Okay. Like they're just like, oh, you have. I So I think the part of this is, is that it's like, oh, you had because they didn't get rid of Severo. Right. Like they didn't kill Severo. That's because they didn't realize that he was like this half-breed offspring they got her because she was ultimately carved okay to have different organs gotcha yeah I, i'd be i'm really curious to see how that all goes down yeah it'll it'll definitely be interesting if that if that was that. on his record in any way i don't think he would have been offered that position maybe maybe not i think we'll have to see we've got okay. more story to go through we do you Quite know, in general. I mean, not not like today, no, but no, no, in general. No, like we're not we're not through the second of five books for now. Yeah, we're not even through um, n- nowhere near a third, even through the series, despite being close to two books in. So during, you know, like throughout this this chapter as well, I thought I, I was unsure if this was intentional or not, but I feel like it's worth mentioning the gas that's used to gas and kill Bran is called Ackley's Nine. Ackley's, I don't know if I'm saying this right, is a root. It's it's a plant, ultimately, and it's a natural insect repellent. It smells like vanilla, um, but naturally is used for mosquito repellent and other things like that. And so it feels like it could be a direct reference to sort of the, the reds being insect like and sort of that sort of mistreatment. I don't know. It feels like a larger metaphor. Yeah. Lingering right there. Yeah. We we talked about this a little bit. It. It seems too coincidental to like not be related. Yeah. Yeah. Die insect. Die insect. Yeah. Especially if you look at it that way. And, you know, I think as, as he's reflecting on this and I think this is that flow to nihilism as he's reflecting on the entirety of his life, right. Is he rolls from that to saying like ashes to being buried to like rolled out to sea, gone forever He's like, that's what society does. Spread the blame so there is no villain. So it's futile to even begin to find a villain. It's just machinery, processes, and it rumbles on, inexorable till a whole generation rises. They'll throw themselves on the gears. And A, wow, shivers, great writing, great work. B, fuck. Yeah. So, I mean, it's almost saying, like, a generation is going to be killed by the machine of the society anyway. So let's get them to kill themselves to stop the machine. I, that's kind of their goal, right? You know, yes. Yeah. And I think that that is in general a great metaphor and a great way to look at it for revolution as it stands. For the most part, there's the there's the age that deals with the actual revolt itself. And then there's the people that deal with the fallout of establishing whatever comes after. Right. Right. He's encompassing that in a single phrase. That makes sense. Yeah. To some degree. I mean, he's not he's not painting it as directly, but it feels like that's right there. Yeah. So with that, we also find out that uh, Severo is half red. And that kind of pays off a theory you had way back when that you kind of made jokingly and then debunked yourself. Yeah. 
I think I, I debunked it by saying, well, no, he's Fitchner's kid. Yeah, right. Just him being small. And he has like red hair, doesn't he? I'm pretty sure. I don't know. If he doesn't, whatever. Like he he's he's way smaller than any other gold. And uh yeah, that's uh paying off a little bit. But I definitely did not actually believe that or that Fitchner was Aries. Like that that caught me off guard, genuinely. Yeah, and it's still there's so much so much to deal with there, right? Like it just I don't know. It um it's I I just keep thinking about the um the the whole picture between Ares Fitchner slash and Severo and the way that they interact between the first two books kind of in silence, including with the Whisper Gem and everything else, knowing that it's his dad, of course. It's just fascinating because Severo also inadvertently or intentionally like lied, you know, to Darrow. He knew. Yeah. Yeah. Like he, he knew exactly what was going on to some degree. It's it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I I also appreciate just sort of the general depiction. This happened much earlier in the book, but it it's reminded here thinking about Darrow that or sorry, it's thinking about Severo. Darrow described Severo as the ugliest angel ever shit out of heaven inside <laughs> of this book on the first 150 pages. And you know, at this point, Severo is also like looking around looking to like eat the trash as he's like being he's having this crazy story told about him like how his parents fought for his life and he's like picking around in the trash. Like what a weird guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's a little bit weird, but also like how much of that came from just fucking trauma from the Institute. Like he, he went through way harsher of a time than anyone else in the Institute. I feel like yeah, I think Darrow's the only one who got close. Everybody up. Yeah, I mean, Severo was living completely on his own. No, right? even more than Darrow. Darrow had help from Fitchner. Darrow did until he didn't, right? Like, that's, he that's what I'm did. saying. Like, like, he he didn't he didn't live a harsh situation like Severo did. Until, like, Cassius struck him down. Even him then, down. even then, he had people with him. Severo was alone. Okay. We've we've got a Severo stand, folks. Like, and that's that's a good thing. I don't know. I th- I think I think Severo Severo's time at the Institute was probably the harshest of anybody's, and it probably fucked him up. Yeah, uh, I mean, maybe might be worth mentioning, but like, I don't think that Adrius had an easy time, <laughs> even though everyone was cheating for him. You know, like ultimately, he still had to cannibalize other students. Yeah. Also bad. So <laughs> also bad. <laughs> yeah, the institute just sounds like a bad time. Really uh, and actually, interestingly enough, that's something that Mustang talks about inside of her chapter. This was a bit ago, but maybe it's worth mentioning now that we're talking about it. Darrow will wears the guilt of killing Julian so like so close everywhere. Like he he all the time feels guilty about it, especially as it relates to Cassius. And she's like all of us had to kill someone in the fucking tunnel. Like, get over it, dude. Like, no one was going to escape. Like, we we were all going to have to kill someone. We all wear that guilt. Yeah. You're just cool for you. Good for you. Feeling morally higher than the rest of us. But the rest of us have also moved on because we realize that we're going to have to live with it forever. 
Oh, boo-hoo, you had to kill the idiot child of the uh, other important <laughs> other important family on Mars. Like, Yeah, exactly. Sorry. Woo. You got a little scar on your cheek. You feel good? <laughs> feel good? Cool. <laughs> All right. So, Fitchner lays out the new plan for Ares and the Sons of Ares here, which is Nero is very likely to take Darrow as his adopted son post this victory here. And ultimately, Not very Nero likely. will win. Will. Will, yes. <laughs> right. He is confident of that. Right. Will adopt Darrow as his son here and then move on to have Nero take over the rest of society with Darrow at his side, ultimately, and all of the other resources to take the throne of the sovereign. Yeah. So with that, Darrow will then inherit society when he passes, becoming the sovereign, and then will be able to take down the machine. So that that, that's presumably that adoption is through marriage to Mustang, right? Yes. So at least partially. What do you mean partially? Well, so historically, we've also talked through these books that people have also been adopted or pulled into families contracts and they could be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they explicitly mention at the beginning of this, they they mentioned that it'll probably be through. It'll include the marriage to Mustang. Yeah. 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 I don't think Lido, for instance, would have had to marry Mustang in order to be his heir. No, true. But yeah, but knowing, knowing Darrow and knowing Mustang, I don't think they would, I don't think they would accept something like that. They would want to be together. So a marriage would make a much simpler next of kin. Yeah, right. So, I mean, it's a good plan, but it's a long game, right? Like it's, it's going to be a long game. You're talking about people who live over a hundred years old. Yeah. So, you know, well over a hundred years old. Yeah. Lauren's like 111 right now. It's, I mean, it's Darrow himself is obviously hesitant because he's seen everything kind of move and roll so quickly. And he's like, you know, he's kind of like, can I give a speech? I'm good at giving speeches. Like I could give a speech and we could start a war and then the colors would rise up with me. It would all be fine and dandy, you know, shot down on that front. Right. Hmm. 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 So Darrow from there moves on. And says that what is going to be most important to him is to be truthful to Mustang because he's ultimately lied to her. That he wants to go back to Lycos and see his family before he embarks on whatever this is so that they don't think him dead. And so there's a combination here of him going back to go see his family, which everyone kind of like they disagree with gently. You know, they're like, I don't think that's a good idea. He's like, I also want to take her. (laughs) They're like, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) Fitchner specifically says shit like 10 times on the page. Like shit, 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 shit. Yep. You'll ruin everything. Got gory damn idiot shit. Um, But I think it makes sense. Yeah. From Darrow's perspective. I think Darrow is starting to realize that this is more about his roots and how reds are in society in general and to kind of get a blessing from his family probably means a lot more than he can really verbalize. Yeah, it's fair. That said, 
how the fuck is he going to do that? Right. <laughs> right. Great question. Yeah. Really hard to answer. Very, very difficult to answer that question. He's He's got a lot to deal with there. Yeah. Um, so any final thoughts on this chapter or the sections in general? Oh, God. Um, I'm so excited. Like, I all I wanted to do was keep reading. I've said this multiple times. You choose the most goddamn, like, cliffhangery or, like, frustrating points to stop reading. And it makes sense from a, like... <laughs> show perspective but fuck you i want to keep reading and i want to understand what's happening so yeah so uh, fuck you and uh all i want to do is finish the story well the good news is is this is the last next week is going to be the last week of our reread of golden sun my reread our read of golden sun our eighth episode for the book so we're going to be tackling the rest of this. It's going to be very exciting. I'm I'm pretty stoked. We've got predictions yet to go, of course. So with that, PJ, we've got a handful of predictions here that you're going to make. So yes. first off, how will Mustang react to whatever Darrow tells him? Um, I think she'll be surprisingly receptive to it. I think I think she kind of knows something's weird about him. Something's up, and uh, that will kind of make things make more sense to her about who he is. But I okay. ultimately I think she'll I think she'll accept it and I think she'll be receptive. Checks out. Sounds interesting. So what comes next in the solar war? Gas giants governors are coming to Mars, we know that. Do you think that we're going to a different planet? Do you think they cut straight to Luna? What do you think the next plan is? We don't have a whole lot of book left, so I don't think we're going to go straight to war necessarily. But what do you think the next move for the war itself is? I think the move is to surround Luna. We're we're pretty close already. So taking Earth secretly will essentially make Luna or Earth's moon um, surrounded, more or less. Mm-hmm. Or at least okay. not not in any sort of advantageous tactical position within the solar system. So I I think they strategically take other planets, specifically earth before approaching Luna. I think it's fair to ask what's up with the Jackal in the gifts chapter resolution. You said in general, um, Jackal doesn't believe that Darrow truly saved them. Want to stick by that prediction. Yeah. uh, I think the Jackal knows something's up. He, he seemed really kind of, Robotic and ingenuine when he was talking about Darrow saving them. Um, like it? So I, I, th- I think he knows something's afoot. Did the Jackal get any information from Harmony and Evie? Yes. And I think that's why he thinks things are afoot. I think, I think Evie... I, I mentioned this before. I think Evie probably gave something up. If Evie gave anything up, we got that as an answer. Darrow tells Victra and Roke about his color so that all the predators, <laughs> predators, predators, I said predators there. No, We're gonna I, typed, this. I typed predators. I was going to say that did not say I, I typed legates slash predators and then I deleted it and just put it as predators. You, you, you said predators. I, I erased it and put yeah. predators. Bastard. 
Uh, Dara tells Victor and Roke about his color. Especially, it's so mean when it's near the end of the episode, man. Anyway. Uh, so, anyway. That was the point. Question, question five. Darrow tells Victor and Roke about his color, so all his praetors are on the same page, was kind of your statement. Yep, here. and I will I will stand by that. I think, um, I think Darrow doesn't have the this like the energy to keep things secret anymore in that mm-hmm. sense especially if he's trying to uphold some trust between him and victra and trying to mend the friendship between him and roke i think the last thing he would want to do is hold secrets from them so i think it would make total sense to bring them into the fold about everything and i think they're i think they're trustworthy enough to uh be trusted with that information. I'd agree. I think um, to some degree, Roke more than Victra, right? Just given time. Um, but, you know, placing placing myself in the same question mm-hmm. to some degree. Final question. Where do you think the book ends? We've got about 40-ish pages left, I think. Um, I think it ends with a planned assault on Luna. Okay. I think it, it, it ends... In a strategic sort of position immediately before they launch an attack on Luna and the and Octavia specifically. Okay. All right. Cool. Anything else? That's all I've got. Neato. So with that, talking about next week, next week we are going to be ending Golden Sun. Yes. We're going to be reading all the way through the conclusion of part four. I can't believe that we're already almost through our second book. I know at this it's point. pretty sweet. It's kind of it's kind of wild. Um, it's it's rolled very quickly, but it's it's cool. So faux should sure. good on us. Good on everything that's going on. Should be very exciting to let everyone know what the schedule looks like as sort of a general outlet from here. So next week we are going to be obviously publishing the ending of the Golden Sun episode. The week following that will be a triple threat week. We will be releasing an episode with a special guest, which will be a wrap-up for the entirety of the book Golden Sun and Red Rising so far. In sort of summation, we'll be discussing some of our favorite parts of the book, some listener questions, of which currently I have 12, as well as some other comments and commentary on the book series so far. We will then be also doing an episode that will be an intro to the book the next book morning star and then we'll be covering a short story as we had hinted at throughout this episode we'll we'll announce more next week on the short story so that's where we'll leave you for this week continue to refer us to your friends and family we absolutely love it any and all listeners are really appreciated at this point as well as if you aren't already please subscribe and follow along with us on whatever platform you're using it goes a long way to referring us um, and recommending us to other people on the platform yeah, and uh, we have a website, wordsandwhiskey.show, as well as Instagram and Twitter at wordswhiskeypod. On the website, we post all of the drinks that we create and uh, feature on the podcast, as well as some additional ones that we just happen to drink throughout the week, which is uh, maybe a little bit more than what's healthy. Uh, social media, we, uh, <laughs> we like to interact with some of our listeners. And if you have any questions that you would like Crossland to ask me, you can send those either any direct message to, uh, either Instagram or Twitter, 
or our email at wordsandwhiskeyshow.com at gmail.com we're really happy for any review any comments anything like that i'm currently collecting questions for our finale episode so feel free to send those on to us so that we can corral those and answer your questions on air yeah i've been uh i've been pretty paranoid i haven't been reading any of the direct messages on instagram or twitter because i'm assuming that they're going to be laced with spoilers so crossland reads all of those yeah beyond that please leave us a review on whatever platform you're using as well it goes a long way to helping us grow uh and we appreciate each and every one of you listening we can't wait to hear from you next week bye